I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Lenore Skenazy started the Free Range Kids movement and wrote the book, Free Range Kids. Now, she is co-founder and president of Let Grow, the national nonprofit promoting childhood independence. Lenore says our kids are smarter, safer, and stronger than our culture gives them credit for. And she joins us from New York City for a second time. Lenore, welcome back. I'm hoping to be one of those people like the five timers on SNL. It's like, yes, where's my cape? That'll be great. All right. Yeah, you and Conan O'Brien. Now, we last spoke in March of 2021, nearly three years ago, and a lot has changed since then. I'm married now. My wife and I are hoping to start a family soon. Yay. But before we dive into how the landscape of childhood independence has changed or not and how, what is it? When you talk about childhood independence, what exactly do you mean in the year 2024? Oh, gosh, I actually mean the same thing I meant in 2008, which shows you that perhaps I'm stuck. But for me, childhood independence is exactly what it sounds like. It's giving our kids back some unstructured, unsupervised time when they can do things on their own, especially in the real world. Playing outside or going for a walk, running an errand, riding their bike, standing by themselves at the bus stop, which nobody seems able to let their kids do. And when I crusade for this... People think that I'm the anti-helicopter parent, but I'm part helicopter on my mom's side. And I also don't blame parents. It's really hard to step back in a culture that has made constant supervision of children the norm. You know, parents are waiting at the bus stop in the morning with their kids. In the afternoon, some schools won't let children self-dismiss, which is a new phrase. They won't let kids get off the bus and just walk home unless there's an adult waiting there for them. Some of them will take the children right back to the bus depot, which... Certainly sounds a lot safer hanging out in the bus depot than walking the two blocks home. I'm really hoping that the call for childhood independence and the evidence that we've gathered about how important it is for kids will start rolling back some of the excess supervision and precautions that we've laid on top of parents and kids that mean that the parents always must be with the kids. And to give our audience some context here on how much things have changed, because I think unless you're over a certain age, I think the water's been boiling for so long that we take it for granted. It's like a cool dip in the pool. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And it's boiling hot. In 1969, 42% of American children walked or biked to school. But by 2017, that number had fallen to 10%. And I imagine it's probably in the single digits now. So Lenore, what the hell happened? Wait, I have better statistics than that because everybody always goes to that one safe routes to school statistic. Most kids were walking to school through most of American history until very recently. So it's not that it went from 42 to 10. It went from 80 till 10. And I thought you were going to read to me from a book from 1981 when I thought you were going to look back to the old days. And my favorite example of how much times have changed is that the book, Your Six-Year-Old Loving and Defiant. There was a whole series of like your five-year-old jerk or angel, whatever they were. (laughs) The one for six-year-olds was loving and defiant. And it had a list that I consider like the Rosetta Stone of parenting of what a six-year-old, which is a first grader, could do. And they could tell their left hand from their right hand. I think they could stand on one foot for a certain amount of time. I can't remember what it is. And it said, and of course, they can walk, you know, eight blocks in any direction. They could go to school or the park or a store. And that was six years old. And literally yesterday, I got a note from a mom. What did it say? Her kids were playing outside on her front lawn. Somebody walked by or drove by and saw unsupervised kids, didn't realize their mom happened to be at home. I could see them through the window. Didn't matter. And Child Protective Services came knocking at her door. She's terrified. She doesn't know what to do. Should she get a lawyer? And that's the big change. It has gone from a culture that trusted children to do some things on their own, to be pretty safe, pretty successful. Or if they get lost, okay, they'll ask a stranger or they'll wander around or they'll follow the breadcrumbs. (laughs) Somehow things will be okay. Children aren't safe even on their front lawn without an adult literally there watching their every move. And what has changed is, what can I say? I I wrote a whole book about the different things that pushed us 
to start behaving that way and believing that. And one is the 24-hour news cycle, which stumbled upon the idea of a white middle or upper middle class child taken by a stranger, realized that was the biggest eyeball getter of anything and just has been reserving it up in every different way from in the 80s, there were missing children's pictures printed on milk cartons. And it said, have you seen me? And it was very depressing and very scary. And there was no asterisk that said, I am a runaway or I was taken in a custodial dispute between two divorced parents, and now I'm living with my mom. It just looked like all those kids were taken by strangers. To that point, Lenore, I never really quite made this connection in my head until now, but social media and the prevalence of having phones has done a lot for the pursuit of criminal justice reform, like the ability to film police malfeasance as it's happening has been a gift in terms of the rights of the accused, and it's really put a spotlight on police abuse, right? But I think similarly to the milk carton paradox is if you're on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, you'll see one incidence of however terrible that police abuse is. You'll see it a million times because it gets posted over and over and over again. And so it creates this idea of a prevalence of abuse that might not be there. Now, you could say one case of abuse is too much, and I would agree with that. I don't think police should abuse their power. But I think similarly... The idea of it's a parental dispute or a runaway, let's just remove those for just a hot second. And let's say you have an incident of an actual kid being actually kidnapped, but you see that one child's face across thousands of milk cartons every time you go grocery shopping. It creates, similar to social media, this impression that there's thousands of missing children. It certainly does. And our brains work like Google. (laughs) No, really, if you ask your brain... Where can I find good Momos in Jackson Heights, Queens, which is where I live, and Momos are these delicious dumplings? It will list 20 different places, and I will have something relevant for my search. Okay, oh, I'll go to 74th Street. Those sound good. If I ask my brain, can my child wait at the bus stop, up come the easiest to remember stories, which are not all the kids waiting every single day for 180 school days a year at the bus stop for the bus to come. It's the one case of Eitan Pates taken in 1979 from a bus stop. And then maybe the second case is J.C. Dugard taken 20 years later from a bus stop. And so the information that I get, the search results are actually the least relevant because they are the most rare and therefore the most memorable and easy to call up. And then a second bad thing happens. Okay, so now my search results are populated with the worst possible stories from literally decades. And then the brain thinks that the easier it is to remember something or to picture something, the more likely it is to happen. So it actually thinks that those search results are proving that no kid is safe at a bus stop because don't you remember Aton? Don't you remember JC? And it cannot remember. I, I once calculated the number of kids who had been born since Aton was taken from his bus stop in 1979. And it was, I think, 180 million. <laughs> And that was a couple of years ago. It's probably 190 million by now. So you cannot picture 190 million children times 18 years of schooling times however many days of school a year. So we really do get it wrong. And of course, the other thing about your brain is that every time it sees that milk carton or that story, it's as if it's new. It's accretion. So yes, the media and now social media have been driving us crazy ever since they started realizing how, it's a weird word to say, how popular those stories are, right? I mean, it's an easy way to get viewers. It's sickening and it's easy. But that's just one of the things that's changed in the years since your six-year-old loving and defiant (laughs) and the American Academy of Pediatrics says no child should be a pedestrian on their own until age 10. So it really is an evisceration of our trust in our kids and our community and even in basic child development. I mean, kids are really seen as incompetent, even though we love them. Maybe they're competent at their homework, but they're not competent to walk to school. They're not competent to spend their time doing anything other than being lumps. And it's distressing to me because as parents, we all love our kids more than anything and anyone else in the world. And yet this culture is telling us that they are in constant danger of being nothing unless we're with them knitting each synapse. And I have a rant sitting in my computer. Tell me where I should send it. You know, I get Parents Magazine online just because I need a mallet to hit myself over the head with and it never fails. And sometimes the mallet actually has spikes on it. And most recently it did. There was an article on how to boost your toddler's development as if that's possible. And It had 11 things that a loving parent should do to bond with their child and boost their development. And I'll just tell you number one, which was take a piece of poster board, write the letters on it, the alphabet, 
put glue on each of the letters, and then cut up pieces of sandpaper and stick the sandpaper to each of the letters, because that way your child who is too young to grasp a pencil or crayon can feel the texture of the letters. So they're getting sensory input and they're learning the letters. And pretty soon they'll start noticing that there are other things with textures and that letters are all around. And to me, this is another Rosetta Stone, because if you think that your child doesn't feel textures all day long, where do you think they live? (laughs) Because they're on the earth. Everything they possibly touch from their pillow to faucet has a texture, right? I mean, that's so obvious, but Parents Magazine is pretending that they won't touch or feel anything until you direct them. And similarly, Parents Magazine is telling you your child will never notice letters or shapes or colors. You're supposed to sing vocabulary words to them. You're supposed to count out loud how many books does it take to cover the bed. As if no information gets into a child except what is expressly provided from the parent to the child in a class-like setting that is rewritten to be a fun bonding exercise, but actually makes the parent very self-conscious and also makes them think of the kid as nothing except a bucket. It's also a problem of the ever-present need in the 21st century to constantly produce content. Yes. Yes, I think you're right. Yes. In the same way that the 24-hour news cycle means that we have to always report on every burning building so that there's something that the news anchors can talk about, even if the burning building is taking place 3,000 miles away from where you live, you're watching it and you're like, oh my God. Similarly, how many parenting magazines or websites would go out of business if they just were like, hey, there's already... 80,000 books on how to raise your child and children haven't evolved that much in the last 100,000 years. So just buy one of those. Or don't buy one. (laughs) Or don't, yeah, don't or do. I think it's similar to like, I've always really for the last 30 years or so struggled with weight and proportions and eating. And so every once in a while, I'll go back to the well of YouTube and there's 8 million videos on what to eat, what not to eat, the Mediterranean diet, the celebrity diet, fasting, keto, all these other things. But it's just this need to fill the void of needing content all the time. And I have to say, so last night I was at a talk and then I watched the interviewer and his girlfriend, the interviewer had been a vegan last scene, and I was walking behind them and I saw them go into the steakhouse. So clearly they've gone to paleo from vegan at some point, which I don't blame them. It was just so funny. It's like, wait a minute, why are they going to the steakhouse? <laughs> Did they have the talk because it's next to the steakhouse? It was just curious. <laughs> Everything has to be a hack or a list or some kind of secret code that has been passed down. Have you heard of the Japanese reality show Old Enough? Let me ask you a question. Do you think I would not have heard of the Japanese show (laughs) Old Enough, known in Japan as my first errand? No, tell me about it. Uh, Is there a show about children and independence? Because that sort of interests me. Do tell. You know, I could have thought of a better way into that topic. (laughs) That's okay. No, it's okay. And I I shouldn't be snarky. You know, I got to do these. I got a smile on face. Okay. No, what? what, Is it a show about old people? (laughs) Well, for our audience, it was causing all the controversy in America a year or so ago. It's this show that's been popular in Japan for 30 years where kids between the ages of two and five are set out to run errands by themselves, like grocery shopping or dropping off dry cleaning. The response to the show from American commentators on social media was pretty predictable. What are your takes on that? When I watched the show, it was so fantastic, I almost couldn't watch it because it disheartened me so. One of my favorite episodes, two, one, which I'd seen years earlier because it was very popular on YouTube, showed a girl and her brother who's about three shopping for a million ingredients. I mean, they have to go and get the bok choy and they have to get the rice and they have to go to the butcher shop and they also stop for a toy. And as they start out, the little brother is crying and they have a very intrusive soundtrack on the show. And you hear parents going, oh, oh, look, 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 tsk, 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 you know, and all the empathy that anybody feels when you see a kid scared and crying and sort of being forced to do something new. But the determined little five-year-old takes his hand and they cross the street and pretty soon they're shopping for the bok choy or whatever. And then they're at the butcher shop and you see... She's saying to the butcher, you know, we need meat. And you see the little boy looking at everything else in the store. And it's so interesting. He's excited. He's involved. And he's independent. And he has trusted somebody other than his parent to take him somewhere. And in the end, even the soundtrack, even the audience is like, oh, look, so wonderful. Because it is wonderful. And the thing that we have taken from American parents so unfairly is that joy. The joy of 
seeing your kid overcome a fear or a difficulty or even a real challenge, like how do I cross the street safely? I know I've been taught it. Now I have to do it on my own. How do I deal with this tall, tall, tall person who's the butcher? You know, how do I remember what my mom wanted? What if I get it wrong? All these things are part of becoming a confident, unanxious kid. Because if we keep giving in to their fears, and it's not even their fears, it's our fears. (laughs) If we keep saying like, oh, that's too much for them, or they would get it wrong, or I don't want them to feel nervous, or I'm not sure they can actually understand how to walk a couple blocks. Remember, (laughs) your six-year-old loving and defiant from 1981 in America, your kids were walking eight blocks in any direction, riding their bikes, going to friends' houses, playing in the park. And when they do that, they come home rosy and excited and they met the squirrel and they petted a dog. And your heart, like the Grinch, grows three sizes that day. And we don't get those experiences if we're with them all the time and saying, honey, why don't you pick those flowers or put those down or here, let me help you. So that was one great episode on Old Enough. But the other one that I really loved was this girl was told to go get a cabbage from the cabbage patch and bring it home so her mom could make cabbage. And she gets to the cabbage patch, and she doesn't realize that the producers have plucked a cabbage from the ground and have put it there for her to take. And so she actually goes to where the cabbages are still growing. Well, you know what the inside of a cabbage is. It's this really thick stalk, right? That heart of the cabbage. So she's trying to pull it, and she can't. And she does that for a really long time. And then finally she thinks, okay. And she starts to turn this giant cabbage, which all of its leaves on the outside, like the steering wheel of a bus. It's huge. It's hard. And she's turning it and turning it and turning it because she's right. That will eventually get the cabbage out of the ground. The sun is going down. (laughs) The camera crew is wondering, what the fuck? When are we ever going to leave? Oh, my God. Didn't she see it? There's a cabbage over there. There's a cabbage over there. Finally, they go and show her that there's this other cabbage because I don't think she actually got the cabbage out of the ground. But I thought, What an amazing and yet totally normal kid. She's given a task. She's trusted to be responsible. She's helping out her family. And when she can't do something one way, she does it another way. And she keeps trying. And she would have kept trying till the stars came out because she's a human. She wants to succeed. And why do we take that away from kids? That wonderful turning on of a child, the ignition and the key. We've taken the key out. We've said, I'm going to put it in my pocket until you're 30. (laughs) And we wonder why kids aren't in the driver's seat of their lives. They're in the passenger seat of their lives. And all I'm trying to do is say, you didn't like being in the passenger seat of your life. Please give your kids a chance. Our culture has told us not to trust them and not to trust the world. And that's a horrible lie. Two of my takeaways from those episodes you just shared. One I think about the research I've done on Montessori education and the founder of one of the Montessori schools here in California that I was able to speak with early on in this podcast run and how Montessori education works for our listeners is you usually pair younger children with older children in the same class. The age difference might just be one or two years, but younger kids seeing older kids handle the very same problems or try to solve the very same things that they might be struggling with, seeing a child just a little bit older than them confidently doing that thing can imbue that younger child with that same confidence. And then also this rush to judge a child's ability or their capability by their very first reaction or their very first attempt at a thing and then thinking that that's all they'll be is so poisonous. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought of it that though. Yeah, but you're talking about the kid who was crying and it's like, okay, let's not do this. We'll go home. Yeah, that is poisonous. No growth is even assumed. It's like, that's it. Case closed. Goodbye. Right. We're like, oh, he's crying. Let's do it for him. It's fine. He's crying. Where if you just waited, like you said with the show, just wait five more minutes and he'll get over it. But it's understandable, too. I mean, you're crying child who you love, or even if it's a stranger and you see a child crying, you're like, oh, they must be in pain or in despair and let me help them. But you just have to let them work through it. To change gears a bit here, you said in one interview in 2021, quote, By the time you have an entire government agency warning you that pom-poms are deadly, there's something amiss. It's almost a parlor game, except that people are really being driven crazy. Come up with a reason that almost anything is a danger. It's an OCD culture. You feel like if you do certain things and you're obsessed by doing them, you can make things safe, end quote. And you've looked into the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, an agency of the federal government that, quote, seeks to promote the safety of consumer products by addressing unreasonable risks of injury, end quote. 
So, Lenore, are you saying that pom-poms on children's socks aren't unreasonable? I'm saying that anything that passes the desk of a bureaucrat whose job is to prevent any injury, no matter how unlikely or inconceivable, will therefore find a reason to say, don't ever use this. I haven't actually looked at the site for a long time, but there are things on the Consumer Product Safety Commission site that are dangerous. There are batteries that explode, but there's no de minimis there. And so, for instance, we don't want kids eating lead paint chips. That's bad. We don't want lead and gasoline. That was really terrible. But if there's lead in the paint of Barbie's iris in her eye, that is considered a quote-unquote dangerous toy. And I'm thinking, how many Barbie heads would you have to eat to get the lead that's in the iris of the Barbie? And by the time you're eating a lot of Barbie heads, something else is wrong, right? Like, why, why have you chewed off the heads of all those Barbies? Oh, well, I just thought it'd be fun. Nobody does that. And so I don't think the government and I don't think a litigious society allows for common sense, which is a recognition that you can't make the world perfectly safe. But if you make it 99.8% safe, that's safe enough. Yeah. And a couple things there. One, I think by putting actually deadly harmful things on the site right next to pom-pom socks or laundry hampers can create the wrong impression in someone's mind that those things are equally deadly. Dare, you know, dare to keep kids off drugs. I once did a dare rap uh, when I was in elementary school for a school performance, and I will never live that down. (laughs) But when they put marijuana right next to heroin and they're like, both of these things are equally bad. And then if you're anything like me, reach your early 20s and you try marijuana for the first time and you're like, wait a second, what the heck? Like it starts you on this spiral of thinking like, what else have I been lied to about? But the takeaway from that, Lenore, is that heroin is still really bad. But by putting heroin and marijuana or laundry hampers and lead paint next to each other and telling parents, look out for these two deadly things, you create this warped perception. And the other thing that comes to my mind is kind of reminds me how many of us, including government agencies, leadership that we look to to guide us, had this one death is too many approach to something like COVID, which again, I'm very glad that my 93-year-old grandmother is safe. I'm vaccinated, et cetera, et cetera. But if all we're doing is focusing on the one preventable death, and that's all we see, this myopic approach, we're not taking into account all the other hidden bad things that are happening behind the scenes, like children are now years behind in their schooling. They're having trouble keeping up with their grades. Literacy is down. Their ability to socialize with other children because we locked them away and didn't let them go to school, even though children are very, very low risk for catching or developing deadly COVID disease. It's this focus on this one injury or one death is too much. But an entire generation racked by anxiety and despair. Yes, yes. We don't see the consequences of the safetyism. Well, yeah, safetyism is pervasive. And that's why when I was talking earlier, I mentioned that the American Academy of Pediatrics won't even allow for the idea that anyone under age 10 could walk anywhere by themselves. So first of all, I just want to dial back for your listeners and say the reason you keep talking about pom-poms and laundry hampers (laughs) is because the Consumer Product Safety Commission outlawed socks with a pom-pom on the back, a cute little fuzzy thing, because of course, a pom-pom could detach. And if a child tried to stuff them in their mouths, it could be a choking hazard, which is true. But that's true of literally anything in the house. They could do that with a sock without the pom-pom. They could do it with a sponge, a napkin, a frog. I mean, anything is a choking hazard if you chew it and you can't swallow it. The reason you mentioned laundry hampers is because Paris Magazine, have I mentioned them before? had an article on the 10 deadliest things in your home. And number one was the laundry hamper. And the reason that they had mentioned that was because if you have a wire laundry hamper and the wire somehow pings loose, it could slice a child's cornea. That's literally the danger that they saw in it. And it could. Maybe it has at some point. But once again, you're right. The one in a million, one in a trillion chance that something can go wrong should not be a reason to say, therefore, we can never let X happen again. And so when I was about to go through my list originally of the reasons that what we were allowed to do as kids have changed or even disappeared, and we started out talking about the media and even social media with their obsession with child danger, another reason that childhood has changed so much is the litigious nature of our culture that basically you could take the makers of the laundry hamper to court and say they should have known that if a child was close to a laundry hamper and punctured it with a fork, that the wire could come loose and slice their cornea. And so we deserve a million dollars. 
And you sort of have to think defensively in a culture that allows that. And I was talking to a middle school principal today who wanted to give kids free play after school and was very worried that a parent could sue them under the HIB bill in New Jersey, which is harassment, intimidation, or bullying. If you can prove that a child was hurt by another kid, even verbally, you can sue the school. And so how do you allow for normal human interactions if they're going to be seen through the lens of a trial lawyer and possibly a sympathetic jury? There's a couple things there. One is we need to understand the harm we do to a child when you try to child-proof the world. Also, and this is more top of mind because I recently spoke with Greg Lukianoff and everything that has been going on in the news around things like free speech recently, freedom of speech or the death penalty it's easier to articulate the immediate impact of speech you don't like or speech that makes you fearful, or you're a grieving widow who wants to see a serial killer put to death. It's much harder to look that person in the eye who has been emotionally harmed by hateful speech or is the living member of someone who's been victimized by violent crime. It's much harder to look at them and try and talk about the abstract good of a culture of free speech or Why, even if someone does something really terrible, the cascading consequences of having the death penalty, you know, if anyone of our listeners out there is I'm against the death penalty personally, but it's much easier to be on the side of, yes, but this person did something horrible or this person made me feel unsafe. They said something hateful to me. We need to restrict their speech. And it's much easier, I think, to get laws passed. I remember in the early 2000s, if you were not a quote unquote tough on crime politician, you just simply wouldn't get elected Republican or Democrat. It was much harder to talk about what are the not easily visible consequences of having a very tough on crime policy? What does that do to society? Same thing with the war on terror. It's so much easier to look at the immediate impact of a thing and say, let's make that illegal or let's punish that or let's restrict that rather than to talk about the social wide good of not restricting that thing. That's the uphill battle for something like Let Grow. I talk about this with my co-founders who are, as you know, Jonathan Haidt, who wrote The Coddling of the American Mind, Daniel Shuckman, who used to be the longtime chairman of FIRE, which is what Greg Lukianoff is the president of, and Peter Gray, who writes, who's a professor and writes about the importance of free, unstructured, mixed-age play. And it's really hard to make visible not only the problems that arise from over-supervision and over-structuring of childhood, but the amazing benefits that occur when you do let kids do things on their own. And they come out of this depression and anxiety and self-doubt, and I would say passivity, that we've sort of made happen to kids because, once again, it's the being in the passenger seat of their lives, waiting for people to tell them what to do. I've talked to teachers from around the country who mention the same thing, and I don't know if it's a trope on teachers' websites or if it's really happening, but they all talk about what happens when a kid drops a pencil on the ground. They said that they sort of stare at it as if they're waiting for it to, like, jump back up. And the idea is that they've been so conditioned to waiting for instructions or somebody else assisting them, unlike old enough or my first errand or the kid in the cabbage patch, that they're just waiting for somebody to say, it's okay to get out of your seat and pick it up, or why don't you pick it up already? I talked to one teacher who was on crutches because she'd hurt her ankle, and so she leaned the crutches against her desk. And a kid had to go to the front of the room or the garbage can or something, and she said, Miss Lewis, your crutches are in the way. Hmm, I wonder how you could possibly get around a pair of crutches in a classroom. So there's something distressing and depressing going on. And the solution is to make visible the growth and almost the therapeutic impact of independence and free play. And so one of our two school initiatives that you can also do at home, but it's good to do at school because it's good to have a collective answer to a collective problem. And all our materials are free. So I might sound like a salesperson, but there's no sale, actual dollars being made here. One solution that we suggest schools do is stay open for a mixed age, no phone zone, free for all. I don't don't call it that. Social emotional lessons and leadership training, which is actually just play before or after school. And I was just interviewing three teachers. They run a play club at their school, but that means they just sit there and talk to each other and watch the kids. And they've watched the kids do things that struck them as impressive and amazing. And I'll tell you two of them. One was that they were watching a soccer game of kids kindergarten through fifth grade. And one of the kindergartners fell and hurt himself. 
And the game stopped and the kids came around and they made sure he was okay because they were older kids and they were getting something out of this too, not just being role models, but empathizing. A little kid is hurt. Their hearts beat too when they're allowed to become the humans that they are and not just wait for somebody else to come and help the kid. And then the kid doesn't want to look like a baby around these big kids and also didn't want to stop playing. So he's like, I'm okay. And it's like, okay, 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 buddy. Yeah. okay. And then they continued playing. And the teachers were talking about how if they had come over, the whole game would have stopped. The kids would have been passive. The teacher would have been taking care of the problem. And the kid would have been stared at as this injured baby. And nothing good would have come out of that. And they watched two kids arguing over a bucket. They said there are 80 buckets on the playground. The kids were arguing and pulling on it for, they said, five minutes, then six minutes, and then about seven minutes. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, playtime is going to be over. Shouldn't we go in and just say, you know, there's a thousand buckets here. Choose a different bucket. But they held themselves back. Finally, one of the kids, the evolved child, <laughs> went and picked up another bucket, at which point the other kid comes and starts yanking on that one, too. And then they said, and then it became a game. I'm going to pick up this one. You're going to pick it up. I'm going to put it there. You have to go around it. You have to get me. And they were laughing. And we wonder, how do you get to the point where everyone is so thin-skinned and fragile, so easily hurt by a microaggression that there can be no free speech because anything could be interpreted as harassment, intimidation, or bullying? Well, maybe it's because they've never had to deal with somebody who is frustrating them, making them mad, not being fair. And then work their way through it and even get perhaps to the point where there's respect. And I'm not a boy, but you hear that boys are, you know, they'll fight, 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 fight. And that's how they become friends. They'll have a tussle. And after that, you know, do me a solid and they're shaking hands and they're best buddies forever. When we think of any conflict or any frustration as too much for our children to bear and we interrupt the growth that was about to happen, and replace it with stunting supervision and assistance, our slogan at Let Grow is always helping kids is hurting them. We have another slogan, always treating kids as fragile is making them fragile. We've got a lot of slogans, but the solution is point A, a play club before or after school where there's an adult there like a lifeguard at the beach in case there's a shark, in case there's something horrible, in case some kid is drowning, but otherwise they don't get involved. Lifeguards are not there to organize games. They just watch for an emergency. So when you let that time unfold where kids are coming up with something to do and making it happen and figuring things out, like those teachers who watched the hurt kindergartner and the two kids fighting over the bucket, you will be amazed. Just like the audience is when they're watching the Old Enough show. You have no idea that these are people just like us and they will come up with solutions just as we do. They're just younger and it might take them longer and they might come up with a solution that's completely different from ours. So start a play club at your school. And the other let grow solution is to start doing the let grow experience where teachers give kids the homework assignment that simply says, go home and do something new on your own with your parents' permission, but without your parents. The kid and their parents talk about it. I want to walk the dog. Well, that's too hard. Oh, I want to walk to the playground with a friend. Okay. Or I want to make pancakes for the whole family or I'll run an errand. Whatever it is, it's a lesson for the kid in how much they can handle on their own, but it's a lesson for the parent because they get to see what we were just talking about, the joy of their kids figuring something out, of being independent. As parents, we are hardwired. We have kids so that they will exist into the future when we're not here. And until we see that they actually can exist when we're not here, we don't have that existential relief of like, oh, they're going to be okay and the joy that comes with that. And so the Let Grow experience, which is a project every month, this month do something for your friends, this month do something with a friend, do it for your parents, do something for the community, whatever the project is, something on their own, the kids are elated. You know, I can't believe it. I made chicken and rice for my family. One kid wrote about going to the store and getting the ingredients for something that she was making and how hard it was to deal with everything. She had to find the stuff and she had a hard time with the cashier and she wrote the piece in the worst spelling I've ever seen. But it turned out it was a kid with learning disabilities who was nonetheless so proud of having done this grown-up thing and having had her parents trust her that she wrote 10 sentences on going to the store. I mean, kids are turned on in a way that nothing else will turn them on when we let them be part of the world. And if we're worried about the anxious generation, which is the name of John Haidt's next book, where there's three chapters on Let Grow, 
If we're worried about kids feeling depressed and ineffective and passive, the answer is to give them back the rocket fuel that is our trust in them to do some things on their own. One of my big takeaways from that story you just shared about the unsupervised playtime between the mixed age kids is the contrast between how many decades and generations and laws and social changes and restrictions and regulations have been needed to put into place to create our current moment. The contrast between all of that and then just a couple hours of unsupervised playtime to revert kids to the natural mean is amazing. As dire as our situation can seem right now, with all the laws still in place across the United States that are punishing parents for letting their children play in the front lawn, that all of that can be undone with just a couple hours of unsupervised playtime and getting those adults to see what those kids are actually capable of when we let them be capable of anything. It's both things. I mean, don't sell the Lecro experience short, too, because it is playtime. It's them figuring out between human beings how to interact. You know, we have a lot of classes now for kids to learn how to share and how to figure out your emotions and how to express yourself and how to breathe and meditate. And it's like, guess what? They're learning all that. Maybe not the meditation, but they're learning all the rest of it through free play. And we don't have to make these artificial lessons in a vacuum when they happen naturally when kids are interacting. But the same thing goes for the parents seeing the kids do something on their own, whether that is play or it's running the errand or whatever, because it's fast. It's fine in any neighborhood. People say, well, what if you live in a dangerous neighborhood? It's like, well, then they can make breakfast or they can go down the hall to see grandma or they could babysit or they could get their backpack ready for school. It's the flexibility of life, right? In Japan, they're going to go get the sushi rice. They're not going to go get the sushi rice here, right? They're not going to go to the fish market here. But Wherever you live, however old your kid is, there's something new that they could be doing and trusted with, and they will be competent and you will be relieved and everyone will feel the anxiety levels going down. I've been talking about it so long that a professor of psychology decided, I wonder if this would work as an actual therapy for kids with anxiety. So he ran, his name is Camilo Ortiz, and he ran a pilot project through Long Island University where he treated four families where the kid had a diagnosis of anxiety with five sessions. And the first session was just with the parents to talk to them. Independence is important. That's what we're going to be doing with your kid. And he found out from the parents what the problem was. Like, I'll just give you the example of one girl who was afraid to sleep in her own bed. Just couldn't do it. Too nervous. So then when the kid comes on session number two, he doesn't talk about Oh, I hear you're afraid to sleep in your own bed. How about tonight you sleep there for 10 minutes and then tomorrow night, you're, that's, which is exposure therapy, right? Instead, he's like, you're 10, double digits. What are you ready to do on your own? I bet there's some things. And she wanted to do some weird things. She wanted to sell bracelets at school. She might've been the kid who wanted to go play chess in the park. I can't remember. But one of the things she wanted to do was take a suburban bus in her quiet suburban neighborhood. So that was one of the things she did. And when she was on the bus, something went wrong with her phone and she couldn't see where her route was, Google Maps or something wasn't working or she wasn't getting internet. And she's like, oh my God, now what? What am I supposed to do? And the lady next to her starts talking to her and it's like, oh, you, you know, your map isn't working here. Let's try it on mine. And somehow they figured out where she was going and she got off at the right place. And that very night, I mean, this sounds like a fairy tale, but that very night she slept in her bed all night and then she kept doing it. And it was so amazing to the parents it was not amazing to me because what she had found out in that brief excursion was that she could be out in the world doing something without anyone she knows. Something could go very wrong. She could be scared and helpless and then take back the reins and things could right themselves and she could do it again. In fact, she could do anything because now she has this power, which is competency, and the definition of anxiety is worrying that something's going to be hard or terrible or dangerous, that something bad will happen, and that you won't be able to handle it and you'll be hurt for the rest of your life. Well, guess what? She went out, she was doing something hard, something went wrong, she fixed it, and she's not damaged for life. And this is going to be, hopefully, we're getting an NIH grant of close to half a million dollars to test this because it's free. I mean, the grant isn't free, but giving your kids independence is free. And if it keeps working, they found that in the pilot project, all the kids said they were worried most of the time when they came in. And four weeks later, four weeks of doing things independently on their own that they wanted to do, that their parents allowed them to do, all four said they were worried a little bit of the time. So we are 
in a culture that is creating anxious kids. And for free, very quickly and simply, we could dial a lot of it down. Yes, again, shows that there's so much of this with work and effort, but there's so much of this that has been built up over decades that can be undone relatively quickly. I think because to your point, Lenore, it's like the mean of childhood existence is independence, learning from your mistakes, growing. The aberration is the last 50 years. The norm is what we're trying to return to. That's really so great. If you hear me typing, I am typing. The aberration (laughs) is the last 50 years. And I was going to say one thing about the laws, which is that in many states, the neglect laws have been mistakenly interpreted to mean any time a child is unsupervised. And that's why that lady who wrote to me yesterday got a visit from Child Protective Services simply for letting her kids play on the lawn. So in eight states, Let Grow has passed what we call reasonable childhood independence laws, which are laws that clarify that neglect is when you put your kid in obvious and serious danger, not any time you take your eyes off them. And that helps all parents. It helps parents who want to free range their kids, like me. And it helps parents in poverty who are a single mom working two shifts. She knows that her seven-year-old is going to be okay coming home with a key and making a snack or whatever. So it proves that poverty is not neglect either. And I have to say the next state we're working in is California. Hey. Yeah. So wish us luck. We also have a law that yesterday was a banner day. Yesterday, we also heard from a representative in Missouri that he had just proposed. He called it like the Childhood Independence for Missouri Act or something like that. But it's our law. And then we're also trying to get the law passed in Michigan and maybe Georgia. So if you live in any of those states, and especially if you have a story of, God forbid, having the authorities called on you in California or elsewhere for letting your kids have a little independence, Or we're happy to present the stories of parents who want to give their kids some independence, who know that their nine-year-old is ready to walk to the store or their seven-year-old is ready to play on the lawn and don't do it because they're so afraid that somebody with a cell phone will call and say, I saw a child outside, send in the troops. That's of interest to us, too, because we've just spent an hour talking about how important independence and free play are for children. If parents think they are not even legally allowed to give those to their kids, that's creating a generation that's stunted for no reason other than fear of the authorities. So we have to make sure that they know and the authorities know that neglect is something very different from independence. Similarly to the milk carton thing, it's a crisis of misinformation. It's people being misinformed about the facts, whether it's around legislation about neglect or about the stats behind how many children are actually kidnapped a year. It feels like getting the actual true information in front of people is the salve, is the antidote. Not to undermine myself, (laughs) but every year I talk to Joel Best, who is the sociologist at the University of Delaware, who disproved the idea that children have ever been poisoned by a stranger's candy on Halloween. And he's been doing this for, he says, like 35 or 40 years. And he said he's come to the conclusion that actually presenting the facts is not quite irrelevant, but it's always hard to have a reassuring fact in the face of a terrifying myth. Mm. So really, that's why Let Grow is so dedicated to action. Because if you're thinking about things in your head, you'll always go back to the scary thought or what if, or I would never forgive myself. And so you really have to have something very powerful to rewire your brain. And that is the reality of your kid going and doing something independently and coming back to you and the feeling you feel after that. Because just facts and just thinking, I'm afraid, don't get us as far as I'd like. Yes. Action over information. Seeing it with your own eyes or if you're the child doing it. And feeling it. Yes. You know, and speaking of Greg and FIRE, the Freedom for Individual Rights and Expression, They have those yearly college free speech rankings in which they poll over 50,000 students across the country to determine which colleges are the best for free speech. And it puts a big spotlight on colleges with poor or hyper-selective policies around free expression. As an example, Harvard scored dead last in 2023, and I think we see the consequences of that playing out in real time. I wonder, and much easier suggested than done, I wonder if Let Grow could do something similar like a childhood freedom ranking where like different cities above a certain population threshold are are ranked on how free young children are to be independent based on survey data of parents and kids across the U.S. I mean, it could be an interesting database and experiment on actually getting the data of how free are kids to do simple things like walking around or biking to school in Missoula, Montana versus Los Angeles. Yeah. Why don't you take that plan on? (laughs) That'd be great. Why, Why don't you spend a lot of time and money surveying America. I'll tell you, University of Michigan just did. 
They didn't break it down by state or county or street, but they did ask parents what they would let their kids do. And the results are so appalling. I think you'll just include a link in the show notes. But they found that across America, most parents of kids age five to eight won't let their kids do X or Y, but one of them was make a snack. That's the majority of parents. And the majority of parents of kids age nine to 11 won't let them play at a park at a friend, walk to a friend's house, and 50% of them won't let them go to another aisle at the store. So it was across America, maybe Missoula, Montana, they're amazing. (laughs) But this was demographically the hugest net. I mean, it's University of Michigan, they do surveys, right? So it was not one particular income level or race or neighborhood. It was just across the board. And the parents said the reason was safety. And yet they admitted only 17% said they even lived in a place that they consider dangerous. So the majority won't let their kids do anything, even in the safe neighborhood. So we really are dealing with a sort of across the board problem. The one thing I would flip your idea is like how free are kids in this neighborhood or that neighborhood? Go free range or become a let grow town. We had two towns that have declared themselves free range towns, Teaneck, New Jersey and Ithaca, New York, where the town council passed a proclamation. You know, we want kids out and about. But as schools take on the LECRO project and do the LECRO project where they send the kids home with the homework, do something on your own, and start a LECRO play club, they can be LECRO schools. I mean, people call us and say, where can I find a LECRO school? Where can I find a neighborhood? It's like, you have to make it happen. You know, we have a small staff and all our stuff is free. So get it out there. Download our materials. Point your child's teacher or principal or school counselor or superintendent or pastor or rabbi towards our materials because they're very, very easy to implement, but people have to do them. So I'd say have your town become a let grow town tomorrow by bringing this to your school today. Yeah. And for any parents out there who are listening, you have a lot of resources that aren't just school specific. You have things like the free independence kit, which is for parents and children to work on their own. You have the let grow kid license, which we talked about in the last episode and the pledge of independence. There's a lot of resources that are not just school specific for parents or neighborhoods or communities who want to take the initiative to make their town more independent for children, which is great. Yes, we do. (laughs) (laughs) Plug away. Yes, we do. We've got that all. You know, write to us, info at letgrow.org. Let grow, everybody always thinks is let it grow or let's go or whatever. It's let, L-E-T, grow, G-R-O-W. And we're there. We're happy to answer questions. And we're really excited when people realize that this is easy. You know, to start wrapping us out, I thought it would be nice to bring us full circle to the first question, I think, in our first talk all the way back in 2021. So your youngest son was nine in 2008 when, per his request, you gave him a subway map, a metro card and some money and left him in a New York City Bloomingdale's to take a subway and a bus home. He'll be 25 this year, 2024. Let's get some qualitative data straight from the mouth of a Gen Z himself. (laughs) What's the report from the front lines? How are his friends and classmates and coworkers doing, the children who were or weren't raised free range? You know, I haven't asked him that. People always want to know how our son is doing, which is the answer is fine. Got a job and an apartment. But it's an N of one. Your mileage may vary. Your kid's going to vary what they want to do on their own and when and what your neighborhood is capable of and what you're capable of. So he's fine. My older son is fine. They both have jobs. (laughs) They both don't live here. But, you know, one of them lived here for a while. Is that It's like people think that I have a recipe for creating a perfect, high-paid, extraordinarily happy child. What I have the recipe for is a culture that has gone crazy with fear. And I sort of have a 30,000-foot view of what it's doing to our culture as a whole. There's all this anxiety. There's all this depression. There's self-harm. And it's going up and it's been going up even before the iPhone. So it isn't just because of social media or phones. And I have a solution, which is to roll back to a time when that wasn't the case. So I can tell you my kids are okay, but even if they weren't, I would still be flogging the same idea. Yeah, I think the question about how his colleagues or friends are doing or what his impression has been interacting with them is really rooted in like the older I've gotten, the more appreciative I am of what I was raised with. When I was like six years old, my assumption, my ignorant six-year-old assumption was that everyone had a mom and dad who loved them, who were there for them and empowered them to follow their creative dreams. I mean, my parents, I said one thing about loving writing and they enrolled me in like a creative writing course when I was a kid. And my dad would sit down with me and type out stories before I even knew how to write. 
And so this idea that there were parents that were just there and present and hardworking and loved you, I was like, oh yeah, every family has that. That's just how families are. And then you get older and you go over to your friend's house for the first time and you're like, oh, uh, this isn't how it is at all. And then you go to college, at least in my experience, and it's just a mega dose of that. And that's one of the good things about getting out into the world is I just learned so many different ways to live. But every year that I've gotten older, and now as I'm thinking about starting a family myself, the more I am filled with the gratitude of what was and also knowing now what could have been. And I think my question was more rooted in that, not how do you make the perfect child, but I have to imagine in our culture, the restrictive safetyism culture that you are fighting against with your colleagues in this way, trying to reform, your kids were an exception to that rule. And so I was curious if he's ever talked with you about like, hey, mom, I just got home from college and the stuff that I was hearing about what my friends were and weren't able to do just gave me so much perspective. Well, I I would report that discussion to you if I'd had it. (laughs) Did not have it. Well, that's okay. But I did want to say that, you know, when you're thinking about your parents and what they gave you, it's love and confidence and support. But mostly they trusted you. They trusted you to have some interests that they didn't install that you had. And they believed in you. And the studies show that you need an adult in your life who believes in you. And it'd be nice if it's us parents. If you want to be that parent, you have to take a step back that proves that you do trust your kids. Well said. Having this conversation with you, Lenore, reminds me of why I wanted to reach out to you in the first place and why I'm so glad we're able to have a conversation again. My only regret is that it's been three years because I feel like, one, I could talk about this with you every single year. That's you are going to say every single day. So every single year. Okay. <laughs> every single day, Lenore. Well, I could probably talk to you every single day. I think our listeners might be on the, let's say, 100th straight episode of the Lauren and Michael. Again with Lenore. Oh, my God. Really? She's going to tell that story again about the kid and the bike. They're like, we get it. The cartons of milk. We understand. Right, right. No, but I just think that the work that Letgro is doing is so vital. And the problem that we're trying to solve together, people who want to change the culture is so vast and oftentimes dire that the work that you're doing is just really important. And I'm so glad that you're able to be on the show today and share your experiences and your wisdom and your advice with our listeners, because I know your days are busy and I really appreciate your time. So thank you for making the time and thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thank you. And we'll see what happens when you have a bouncing little baby of your own. I cannot wait. Don't bounce them. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let them bounce themselves because that's why it's important. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, thank you again so much, Lenore. It's always a pleasure. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or sharing one of your favorite episodes with a friend or family member, or a coworker, or that barista down the street who always knows your drink order, because those two small actions have outsized impact and will help the show increase its listenership expand its reach, and continue to attract engaging guests to talk about fascinating topics. But it needs to be said, you just being a listener is already a big deal. So thank you.